Let's pray. Let's pray for that as we open the Word together this morning. Our Father, we do pray that You would speak to us with Your still small voice, that it would thunder in our ears, but most importantly in our souls and our hearts this morning. Would You use me, a very weak and frail vessel, to proclaim the strength of Your Word? And may each of us Find that it is searching us. That you might receive glory this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 22. This is the holy and errant word of God. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered and died. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. On the surface, these seem like very odd passages here, back to back in the Gospel of Matthew. They are both unique. They don't seem quite like Jesus. They seem strange to us. And they are unique. In the first scene, this is the only time in the Gospels that we see Jesus turn to physical force. Matthew says, quote, he overturned the tables of the money changers. He, quote, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. John will tell us in his gospel that Jesus puts together a a cord, puts together different cords to make a whip, and he uses that whip to drive people out of the temple along with cattle and sheep. Very unlike Jesus, it seems. In the second scene, we witness Jesus cursing a fig tree, and this is the only time in all of the Gospels that we find Jesus destroying something in nature. Some will say, well, didn't He destroy the pigs when the 
demoniac of the Gerasenes was sent to them. No, that was the demons destroying the pigs. But this is the only time we see him something destroying nature here. Matthew says that Jesus said to the fig tree, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. These are two unique scenes, not what we come to expect of Jesus in the Gospels. When we observe him, he responds and kindness. He responds in gentleness. He responds in patience when sinners come to Him. In the most extreme moments when you and I would erupt and we would no longer be able to be patient, you see that with the disciples are ready to call down thunder and lightning and fire on a city, and they're ready to rebuke people left and right, but Jesus is long-suffering. But not here. What do we attribute this difference to in this passage? Maybe he's having a bad day. We're all entitled to have a bad day here and there. Maybe that's why Matthew's pointing out that there was a night in between and Jesus rose early in the morning that next day. Maybe it was John kept him up late talking at night or Peter was snoring and he had a bad night's sleep. No, that's not the reason. Like some think that it is something along those lines that Jesus is just kind of out of control here. He is a Bruce Banner kind of figure. He has the power of the Hulk in him, and all of a sudden he can't control that passion within, and the green monster comes out as he goes to the temple or as he comes by the fig tree. But he is no monster here, he's not out of control. We must remember in one sense that Jesus is very much like you and I. He is fully human. He has human emotions. We see that throughout the Gospels. He rejoices. He mourns. He weeps. We even see it here in this passage that He is fully human. He hungers from a distance when He sees this fig tree. That's also very true that Jesus is very unlike us. He's fully divine. And as fully God, He is always in control. He, he never has a fit of passion. He ha never has a moment where His emotions overtake Him and He has a kind of incredible Hulk moment. He's always in control. And He is self-controlled here. His actions are deliberate. And they're not only deliberate, they're good and they're right. Do you ever get angry, rightfully so? Do you ever erupt in a, a kind of righteous anger? There are times that you should. There are times that righteous anger should well up within you. Godliness and niceness should not always be equated. Godliness does not always mean calm. There's a place for righteous anger. And the fact that you and I may not erupt at times in righteous anger shows that there is a lack of godliness in us to some degree, if that's the case. So how do you decide what should make us righteously angry? Well, of course, Jesus is our great example and our great model as the great man of faith and the great man of righteousness. And what leads Jesus to good and holy anger should probably lead us to good and holy anger. And we see it in two different ways in this passage. Two things fill him with righteous anger. 
thinking so much of ourselves that we don't think of others, and thinking so much of others that we don't think of ourselves. So thinking so much of ourselves that we don't think of others, and then secondly, thinking so much of others that we don't think rightly of ourselves. And I want to look at those two things this morning from this text. You'll remember that Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. He has entered as the Messiah into this city of kings. And you'll remember that a crowd has come around Him and they have begun to sing praises to Him as this conquering Messiah. And we now see Him enter into the temple. And the temple was at the center of Jewish life. It was here that the nation was to worship. It was here that the people found their confidence as a people. It was here that marked their national identity together because the temple represented God's presence with them. And it was with them. As a people, they were distinct they were different. They were set apart. They alone saw themselves as the object of God's affection in this world. He was their God, and they were His people. And the temple sat on this hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and it served as a kind of talisman for the nation of Israel. We have the temple. We have God's favor. We are God's people. We are the privileged. Imagine a, a prince who wears a crown on his head and he goes out into the land of his people and as he walks in the land of his people, he pushes aside every person he comes across there in the marketplace. And when he is driving down the road, he is running people off the road and said, well, what right does he have to do that? And he believes that the crown upon his head gives him that right, it gives him the place of position, it gives him a sense of entitlement, and that king, that crown represents the fact that he is the son of the great king who rules over this land, and it gives him position and priority and, and privilege. But you see, the crown is meant to be a sign to him as he goes out that these are your people and your servants of these people, and he's wearing his crown wrongly. The temple was in many ways the crown that sat upon the nation of Israel's head, and they wore it wrongly. Jesus enters into the temple, and what he sees absolutely disgusts him. It's not what is often laid at the Jews' feet here, that it was because that there was commerce that was happening and that there was selling of things in the temple or that there was exchanging of money there in the temple. There needed to be animals to be sold. There were people coming from long distances to come and worship at the temple and to make sacrifices at the temple. And you couldn't bring. It was sometimes impossible to bring animals with you. And what happens if your animal gets injured on the way? You couldn't offer that as a sacrifice. So there needed to be a place where you could buy the animal sacrifices that you would offer there before God in worship. And there was the need for a currency exchange. There was a certain temple money that needed to be paid as a tax when you came to the temple. And so you, you couldn't bring your Greek coins and your Roman coins and pay that tax. You had to exchange it for the temple tax. And so it was right. 
that there were animals being sold, and it was right that there was a currency exchange there. Jesus is not enraged with righteous anger because of these two things. Then why? Why is he enraged? Because they were so busy thinking about themselves that they weren't thinking about others. In fact, they were inhibiting others. Jesus gives us insight into this by the verse he quotes from Isaiah 56. He says, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. In Mark's gospel, it's helpful that he expands what Jesus says here, and he gives us another clause in that statement. Mark gives us the additional phrase, and his gospel reads, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The temple was surely a place for the Jews to worship. It was where they were to go to offer their sacrifices and to give their praise and to give their prayers to God. But as they did so, they were to serve as a light to all the nations around them. And that as they worshipped and as they were filled with delight in God and as they were coming before His throne, that that was then to disperse out so that they were inviting others in, the other nations around them in, to worship there as well. But they weren't doing that. In fact, they were creating a hindrance to the nations worshipping God. How? Well, the money changers and the animals being sold were being sold in the outer parts of the courtyard of the temple. If you think about the temple, the temple was kind of concentric squares that moved in. And so on the outside, you had the court of the Gentiles. And the square in from that, you had the court of the women. And the square in from that, you had the court of the men of Israel. And the square in from that, you had the court of the priests. And the square in from that, you had the court of the holies. And the square in from that, you had the court of the holy of holies. And what they had done is they had placed their religious bazaar out in the court of the Gentiles, in effect, barring the Gentiles from having anywhere to worship. They couldn't pray. They couldn't praise. They couldn't come in and out for sacrifices because they were selling animals there and they were exchanging money there. It was noisy. It was busy. Surely... The Jews argued that, well, it needs to happen somewhere and we need to bless our people where they are going to be by far and away the ones that will be worshiping. Very few Gentiles are going to come here. But they were barring the way from these Gentiles worshiping. They had erected barriers. So Jesus is rightfully angry. This is consistently Jesus' attitude throughout the Gospels when He gets angry. It's for this. Think about when He gets angry with the disciples in the Gospels, and I would think, well, it would be when they're doubting whether He can calm the sea. Or when the disciples, like Peter says to Him, when He's in the boat, He says, do you not care that we're perishing? What a question for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't get angry at that. Think, well, maybe it's when he has to explain to them for what feels like the twelfth time that he's going to Jerusalem to die. 
and to be crucified, and they still don't understand. He doesn't get upset with them for their lack of understanding. Do you remember when he gets upset with them? I think of one in particular is when there are parents that are bringing children to Jesus, that Jesus might bless them. And the disciples are pushing away these parents and pushing away these children. And the text says that Jesus was indignant. He's angry. Why? Because they are boring people who are in need, children, from His very presence and from His blessing, from worship. They're inhibiting others from drawing near to God. You see this over and over with Jesus. He's looking at the Pharisees and the scribes, and He will blast them time and again. He has no patience for them. Why? Because he looks out, as he says, and he sees all of these sheep, all of these people of Israel, and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. These people that are supposed to lead them to God, that are supposed to lead them in worship, are actually inhibiting worship. And so he blasts them. He's angry. Those who are most in need of relief, God's grace. And they're bored. And it almost always comes from those who are self-consumed and only consumed with their own person and their own worship and their own people. And this is the reason that Matthew highlights here Jesus' healings. He's healing who? He's healing the blind. He's healing the lame. Why? Because they were often excluded. There's a reason that he highlights these children singing praise to Jesus. Why? Because they were often excluded. In fact, it's an amazing scene. These children erupting in this temple, this temple which is a pattern of the temple in heaven where they're singing to Jesus there. It's very reminiscent of Revelation 15. These children here in the earthly temple see the mighty works, we're told, that Jesus did, and so they erupt in praise. Revelation 15, standing by the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Jesus has no patience for those that are so concerned with themselves that they're not concerned with others. No patience. My tribe, my people, me. No patience. Second, Jesus shows a holy anger when our thoughts are so much upon others that we don't think of ourselves. What we would call hypocrisy. In that quoted passage in Jeremiah here, he references the hypocrisy of the Israelite people. They would, Jeremiah says, steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and then go out after other gods. But then they would come back to the temple of God, and they would call upon His name, and they would offer prayers to Him, believing that the temple would save them, and they would go out once again, and they would do wickedness again. They're living hypocrites. 
Live one way outside the temple, but see the religious ritual of temple going as a means of deliverance. As if God was pleased with their worship at the temple when they lived like pagans outside the temple. And so Jesus clears them out. Hypocrites have no patience for it. I told them verse 14, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. That's what angers them. Jesus is angered by a lack of right prayer and praise. They are angered by the overflow of right prayer and praise. The contrast that you and I are especially to see in this passage is between these religious adult elites and these children. What delight appears in these children. And yet what disregard from these priests. These priests, they are so learned, and yet they are so ignorant. These children are so unlearned, and yet they understand. The priests, they are so ready to convey critique, and these children are so ready to convey praise. They are hypocrites. Hypocrites are like people that you sit down at a dinner table with and they are so concerned about the manners of people at the table and they are so concerned because the person across the table from them hasn't put their napkin on their lap. And all the while they've taken mustard and they've smeared it all over their face. They're concerned about the dainties over there when they're a holy mess themselves. And yet here is what is so comical is they can't see it. It wasn't so sad it would be laughable. Jesus' anger flares at hypocrisy. Because hypocrisy is the worst of infectious diseases within the people of God. It's the worst. It just kind of operates under the service surface, it's contagious, and it can wipe out an entire community. And this is why Jesus curses the fig tree. It's an object lesson of this for the disciples, and an object lesson of this for you and I. That fig tree, as he sees it from a distance, it has leaves, it appears to have life, it points to having life, that fruit could be found there, but upon inspection, the tree is barren and its leaves are telling a lie. There are many, fortunately too many, who make a great show of life. They appear to have life, but upon inspection are found to be barren of fruit. And Jesus is saying, where there is a lack of fruit, there's judgment. There's judgment. I want to give you four quick applications. First, I want you to see that for Jesus, all of this, the temple, 
the fig tree, this what seems like is acting out of character. It's all about life. He's concerned about life. He's concerned that you and I would have true life. He's concerned for those that have been excluded from participating in true life. He's concerned about those that are dead but think that they have life, that play as if they have life. He's concerned about life. That we would experience His grace, that we would walk in faith, that we would walk in repentance, and that we would have life. These Jews thought the temple was all-powerful, and they thought that there was their life, that they could throw off the Roman yoke by having this temple. And they even talked about in, in AD 70, they will use it as a kind of fortress, thinking that it will serve as a talisman for them to throw off power and to throw off might. These disciples, they come to Jesus after He's cursed His fig tree, and they don't ask why He did it. They ask how we did it. And Jesus redirects them to show them that, look, faith is that which is all-powerful. You think this temple gives you all power? You think being the, the nation of God gives you all power? No. It is being rooted in the Son and having faith in the Son and walking in faith and repentance with the Son that has power to ups, turn the world upside down. And Jesus sends out the disciples there in Acts. He sends them out how? With faith. And what happens there in the book of Acts? They literally turn the world upside down. The Jews thought, we'll throw off the Roman Empire and its power with power. And it's the disciples who go out and upset the entire Roman Empire by the power of faith. If you have faith, you have life. If you don't have faith, you don't have life. Do you have faith? Second, may we test our own lives and the life of our church. If fruit's not evident, then we have to question whether there's life within. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You've heard that a lot. It doesn't mark you. It doesn't mark you. Here's a good test for you. Not only search in your own prayer life and ask yourself, does this mark me? But you ask your siblings, does this mark me? Which one of these do you see in me or don't see in me? Ask your spouse, am I failing in any of these ways? Do you see this fruit in my life? This fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Paul writes, if we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's so easy to take pride in what we have been and our outward trappings as people. and That fails. We're to keep in the Spirit. 
John is writing to the churches there in Revelation. You think of those churches, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, all great churches, all great churches of the first century, and all of them disappeared. I want you to hear the charge that God brings against the church at Sardis. He says this, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's hypocrisy. He tells them, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's not enough that you have it. You have to continue in it. He says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? To receiving the Word of God. And living by that Word of God. When the scribes here and these chief priests are mocking Jesus for the praise that is given to Him, what does He ask? Have you not read? And of course they've read. They could articulate it. They could wax eloquent on it. But they didn't understand it. Got a slow to anger, though. You'll notice when he speaks to the church there, he says, keep it, repent. But don't count his slowness as permissiveness. He warns the church, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come against you. That is, what they have will be taken away. It's a real threat. It's taken away. I hope you understand that. And I hope we understand that collectively as a church. We don't bank upon 50 years of plus of faithful ministry here. But we continue to walk by the Spirit. To produce the fruit of the Spirit. I pray that you are seeking to do that in your own Christian life. You're not just banking upon the past. But you're searching yourself daily. Am I walking in the Spirit? Am I striving by the Spirit? You know, it's fascinating. The fruit of the Spirit, they are gifts. They're, they're a gift. That is, when you have the Spirit, you're marked by these things. But what's interesting to me is every single one of them, we're also told to pursue in the New Testament. So joy is something that marks the Christian. And yet Paul will say there in Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He commands you to pursue it. It's yours and you're to pursue it. Peace is something that's yours in the Spirit. It's a gift that's given to you. And yet he will say in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. He's learned it. He's not only been given it, he's also pursued it. He not only has the Spirit, he continues to walk in the Spirit. There's a resting and there's a striving. There be life within that produces fruit without. Third, let us know and be on guard against hypocrisy in our midst. And in our own persons. I want to give you three marks of hypocrites. You know, often the accusation is laid against Christians that all Christians are hypocrites. Well, I guess it depends what you mean. We're all sinners. But it doesn't mean that we're all hypocrites. 
Hypocrites have trouble recognizing their sinfulness. These three things mark hypocrites. They're marked by an arrogant belief that they know more. Often they have knowledge, but their arrogance hides the fact that they don't understand. And knowing, they do not know. As Jesus said to them, have you never read? The answer is, of course they've read, but they don't understand it. They could have quoted it. They could have told you about it. They could have waxed eloquent about the doctrines that were connected to it, but they don't understand it. Arrogance is always the wicked root of hypocrisy. And if we find arrogance in ourselves, we better kill it before it kills us. Because it quickly breeds hypocrisy. Second, hypocrites thrive on critiquing others. If hypocrites, I was thinking this week, if they were attending the university, they would not be majoring in biology or anthropology or sociology. They'd be, they'd be majoring in otherology. Always thinking about others. Critiquing others. Belittling others in their mind. Studying others. They bring all their critical faculties to bear upon others, and that always leads them to heaping burdens upon others. They're exacting in their judgments, and they are exasperating in their conduct. I've yet to meet a hypocrite that is not passionate and opinionated about everything. Strong opinions. Third, what is fascinating about the hypocrite is that they seldom, if ever, bring those critical faculties upon themselves. And third mark of a hypocrite is that they are almost always blind to their own hypocrisy. Jesus will say in Matthew 15, as he is speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, he will call them blind guides. They're blind. I can't see the mustard smeared all over their face. And yet what is fascinating about hypocrites is they always are ready to lead everybody else because they know best. They're the great fountain of knowledge. They know more than you do. And so they want to lead you. And the blind lead the blind right off of a cliff. So, that means that when someone confronts you and I about what they see in our life, I say, ah, I see this sin in your life where you did this and that didn't seem right. The first thing you and I should do is listen. Because hypocrites can't see. And we should search. Is there any truth in this? Am I blinded by my own hypocrisy? The fact that Probably most of us, as I'm saying this, are thinking about somebody else. Shows how much we need to search our own hearts. Finally, may we always have others in mind and seek to be a light to those around us. How awful it would be to to know this great salvation and to want to keep it to ourselves 
to think it just belongs here. Jesus is enraged as they're excluding others and don't have their mind upon others. If I was to tell you this morning that under your pew right now is the cure for COVID, there are very few of you that wouldn't immediately jump up and begin sharing it with everybody in this room, and you would run out of this room and you would start sharing it with everyone out there. You wouldn't say, well, not those people, but these people. You know what? You don't qualify, but you do. you'd share it with everybody. Why? Because you're tired of this. And you want to see people healed. And you don't want to keep talking about mass. And you don't want to see people dying. And you have the answer here. It's a, an answer to this physical malady. And you dispense it without restraint. Everyone's invited. Take of this. It wouldn't just be for our little huddle. It wouldn't just be for our people. It wouldn't just be for people like me. It would be for everybody. When you know this love, and this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. When you know that love, you want everyone to know that love. When you know that peace, that acceptance, and you know the joy that flows from that relationship. You want everyone before that throne worshiping. Everyone. Finally, my friends, don't have a wrong view of Jesus. He's not benign. He's not complacent. He's not obliging. He's generous. He's compassionate. He is long-suffering. He's gentle, as we've seen over these past weeks. But we also get a picture here of the fact that Jesus will act in holy anger. The same Christ who is the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world is the same Christ who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who will devour all of His enemies. The same Christ who hung upon the tree and willingly suffered for His bride and could have called a myriad of angels to come and to decimate His foes will return upon the clouds with those myriad of angels and will decimate His foes. The same Christ who walked into that temple and said, this is my Father's house and cleansed it, looks at this world and says, this is my Father's world and He will cleanse it. He's not benign. He's not passive. He doesn't wink at yours and my sins. So the question is, is, is there life here? Is there life here? You have to answer that for yourself. Is there life here? Because if there is, He is returning and you will be caught up in the clouds with Him because you're washed by His blood and you will enjoy His presence forevermore. If there's not, even as He cursed the fig tree, so He will curse us. Is there life here? Let's pray. Our Father, 
We're thankful for so great a salvation that we have received in Christ. Pray for all of those in this room this morning, online this morning, in the fellowship hall this morning, that each of us would search our souls to see if there is life, and life abundant in our souls. If there is, may we continue to walk by the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit. May we look to those outside of ourselves, and may we love them even as we have been loved. If it is not true of this this morning, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your grace upon us, that you would work in us faith, that we would find that we are turning in repentance, and that the great Savior of the world, your beautiful Son, becomes our cherished Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.